and uh, questions. Like I said, if there aren't questions, you guys weren't, I wasn't being very clear, so. Renee Lucia. All right. I just want to thank you for that. Um, that was just a wonderful sermon. There were so many things it brought up. Um, the, the creation of a Pharisee, I'm so glad you went there in 2B because I've been convicted of that for quite a while, how Pharisees um, believe the Word of God. It seems like they might know it very well, mm -hmm. but it seems that they think they're an exception, that it's a good rule for everyone else except them. They're a special case that it's okay if they don't exactly follow it. Right. Right, no, that, that there's what's terrifying and a warning for us is how well they knew their Old Testaments. Um, as best as we can surmise from extra biblical evidence, the Pharisees would have memorized on a whole the entire Old Testament, plus an additional body of rabbinic teaching about twice as big, because um, they'd have like the Talmud and the thing. Basically, what they'd have is the text, and around the text would be old, dead rabbis' commentaries on the text, like the, the equivalent of our study Bible. And then they'd have commentary on the commentary, as more modern rabbis would, would interpret what Rabbi Hillel meant or something. And so they, they'd commit all that to memory. I mean, just absolutely amazing, um, on one sense, devotion to the text, and yet, bing, right over their head. And the critical issue is they didn't view themselves as sick. They didn't view themselves as in need of forgiveness. Jesus eating at Simon's house. You're forgiven little, you love little. And so, that, yeah, the making of a Pharisee is very, very dangerous when we start to think we're the good guys. And the other people are the bad guys. You, you want to go? Keep going. Yes, and I, I really liked how you tied that into having not having Christ, not having, you know, the house not being swept clean and um, relating that. Oh, you know what? I forgot what else I was going to say. There was something else <laughs> in relation to that. But um, there was another point mm. I had during the sermon, and it was just about how um, dealing with demons. Mm. And um, I don't know if it's always been so. I've been thinking lately because just in so many movies, so many books, the witchcraft is rampant. Mm -hmm. uh, our movies, our, our little children are watching have witchcraft in them commonly. Yep. And so many people don't even recognize that. Do you think this is more than ever or just about the same? Or I, I don't know. We, biblically, we don't see tons of demonic activity. There's, there's a couple spots prior to the Christ event, prior to Christ on earth. Um, so we get to see the conversation with God and Satan in Second uh, Kings. Um, Hananiah tells of God having a council with demons and angels who will entice Ahab to go to war. We, we don't get a ton. Uh, they worship, in, in Leviticus 14, the Israelites worship goat demons. Um, we don't get a ton of demonic activity that we're told about in the Old Testament. But we know things are going on so that when Daniel prays for a month, the angel finally comes to him and he says, I was sent the first day you prayed, but the prince of the power of Persia withstood me and Michael came and had to rescue me. What? Angelic wrestling? It's just bizarre. So we know from the Old Testament there's an active demonic and angelic world. We don't know much about it. And then Jesus shows up, and I don't know whether demonic activity was heightened at that time or simply he exposed it and lit it up and revealed it. And I don't know whether the, the amount of demonic activity in Jesus' time is normal 
but it takes Jesus to show up to terrify them into revealing their presence. I don't know. Or whether or not um, as Jesus incarnate is walking around on earth, Satan is upping his attack and that becomes a crescendo point for demonic activity. I do not know the answer to that question. Uh, I do not know. Uh, in regards to today and what's going on, um, I, I, again, I don't know. I Go to John 8, though. I referenced this in the message. If you're not in Christ, you are a son of Satan, according to Jesus, and your desire is to do his will. Um, we think that playing around with the occult, playing with Ouija boards and stuff opens you up to demonic influence. Simply not being on Christ's team puts you open to demonic influence. Jesus says that plainly. So I'm, I'm not in favor of playing with Ouija boards and stuff, but we, I, I want to push back against the misconception that you're, as long as you don't play with the occult, you're safe. If you don't have the strong man in your house, just because your house is empty and clean right now, any, we'll just, we'll read John 8. So, um, pick it up in verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Well, let me go back here further. So this is Jesus speaking to Jews. There's a whole subset issue here, the fact that these are Jews who identified in verse 31 as those who believed in him. And as you read John's Gospel, you, kind of, you find out there's faith, and then there's faith. Um, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And this notion that they might be slaves offends them. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say that we will become free? You know, the Jews have never been enslaved to anyone except the Egyptians and the Philistines and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. But apart from that, nobody. And But I think they're tracking with them. I think they get this is spiritual slavery. I can't imagine they'd be that foolish to say we've never been slaves to anyone. Maybe they are. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak from what I have seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. The answer to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children... You would be doing the works that Abraham did. Last week, um, we talked about how the notion of father and son, sonship, is, is a functional category, like father, like son. The son and the daughter behave like the parent. So Jesus is not suggesting that their parent, their mothers had, you know, some, some affair with Satan. Rather, you're acting like your father. You're trying to kill me. Does that look like Abraham as your father or somebody else? That's the argument. Uh, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, you were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Oh, okay, okay, if you want to press us then, God's our father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. 
You, and get this, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He just said, you're trying to kill me. And he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. You're lying about who I am, Jesus is saying, and you're trying to kill me. That's the fruit of a different family. But notice how your desire is to do his will. So you're in one of two categories. You've either got the stronger man residing inside, or you are of the father of the devil and your desire is to do his will. That's what Jesus says. And so um, it, it's, I think it's a mistake to think there's, this, again, this third category of neutrality or safety that as long as you don't play with Ouija boards and as long as you don't play Dungeons and Dragons, you're going to be okay. I think what Jesus is saying is you're, you're a sitting duck. Um, it may not result in sort of the, some of the bizarre behavior. I think Satan's quite happy to have a nice materialist, a nice moralist, a nice self-righteous, self-confident person. You know, again, I think movies make us think Satan's really into like bizarre, weird things. He just wants to destroy and take as many people with him as he can, I think. So I, Whereas in movies, you'd think his primary desire is you know, that people would sacrifice. That's part of his agenda, but ultimately his agenda is simply that people wouldn't glorify God and that people would perish with him. He's going down, he's been struck a mortal wound, and yet he's thrashing around, trying to take as many people with him. And so, I'm only emphasizing this again because people, people look at things. Um, I remember when I was, I was younger, and there'd be these marches and protests against really overtly wicked, occult-looking, you know, music like Rob Zombie or Ozzy Osbourne, that sort of stuff. And they'd have like warning signs and stuff. And I'm not saying that those guys are doing anything good, but they'd let Britney Spears right in the front door, or the Spice Girl. I mean, remember the Spice Girls? If you want to be my lover, you've got to get with my friend. I mean, that's just wicked. The most demonic song I've ever heard in my life was written by Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. I mean, that could be Satan's theme song. You get that, right? So the only the reason I'm highlighting this point, no, the reason I'm highlighting this point is we we see the occultish stuff, right? And we're like, oh yeah, that's bad. There are very few people, I think, in this world who are under the mistaken impression that Rob Zombie or Ozzy Osbourne are dealing in truth, that have concluded these people have figured out life. I mean, there might be some. Most people are just being rebellious and like being, I'll be rebellious with them. I don't think many people are deceived into thinking, wow, this mumbling lunatic has figured out reality. I think there are plenty of people who think the themes of Frank Sinatra's songs and stuff are. And we'll let the, I think we let the frontal assault right through the front door because it doesn't look evil and it doesn't look occultish and it doesn't look frightening. And so we just let it right on in. So the, that's the only reason I'm pushing, not pushing back, I'm trying to expand what you're saying. If we only think the demonic is in the occult, we are wildly mistaken. That's, that's my point. Yeah, good so. point. And I think uh, of that uh, statement of scripture, the sin of rebellion is as the sin, sin of, of witchcraft. witchcraft. And mm. I remembered my other point, as oh. far as the Pharisees end this, that whenever I see something like that, may I not become a finger pointer, but may it be a reminder to me to obey God's law. Yeah. And the, that scripture that says, he who loves me obeys my law. So, Yeah, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's a t- challenging statement. And I remember I took a practical logic class in college. It was actually one of the most useful classes I ever took. It was basically 
various logic issues and just for practical everyday life. And when you get a uh, if-then statement, if A, B, um, a lot of times people will mistakenly infer wrong conclusions. Let me give you an example. So if, if it is raining, the grass is wet, right? Does not necessarily mean, if you take the work with me here, A, B. So A, if it's raining, condition A, then B is true, the grass is wet. Does not mean, you can't flip it around and make that true, if the grass is wet, it's raining. It might have been raining earlier this morning, right? Right. You want the contrapositive. And it doesn't also mean that you can negate A, get negative B. You can't, that doesn't also mean if it's not raining, it, the grass is not wet. Again, it could have been raining earlier this afternoon. There's only one other logically necessary conclusion from an if A, then B statement. You flip the order and then you negate. Which means, if the grass is not wet, it isn't raining. Right? That's the only necessarily true statement you can come up with from if it's raining, the grass is wet, the contrapositive, whatever. The, the thing to remember is flip the order and then negate. So whenever you get an if-then, flip the order and make it negative, that must be true. Now, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you don't keep his commandments, you don't love him. Must necessarily be true. And that's a tough thing to take. And again, we, we, we think we love him because we sing really loudly. And if you do love him, you will sing. And we think we love him for all the, And Jesus is saying, you want to know how you love me? You keep my commandments. And again, it's not like a measuring stick of perfection, but like, are we endeavoring to do that? If we are, we're showing love to the Savior. If we don't, whatever else is going on, we don't love him. Either that or Jesus is mistaken, which I don't think is the case, right? Um, <laughs> So it's tough. It's tough. Hey, Jesus centering back. It's great that you want to praise Mary. I mean, I suppose, as long as you mean the right thing. But really the blessing is for hearing and keeping the word. And that's Luke's emphasis all the way through, is is hearing and keeping God's word. So um, did I speak to what you're getting at or did I get off track? Oh, okay. Thank you. Yes, Linda. Okay. Have you taken any consideration to you two starting that podcast I was talking about before? Because I think it would be legit. Okay, okay, Lynn. Okay. Okay, so to your point to C then. Point, oh, that was the one I knew we were going to get to, yeah. Okay, so we, it's very easy to look in the world and see the things Renee was talking about. Mm -hmm. But rarely do people look within the church mm -hmm. for the same thing. Mm -hmm. Because if you have pastors, so-called, hirelings is a better word, maybe. Okay. <laughs> Ouch. Not to point any fingers. Ouch. No. I'm getting no, nervous, no, no. that's okay. Not, Continue. He said You, you know word. what I mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Those people would also be doing the work of Satan. And scattering. I mean, that, that's what's so tough about the absolute statement of Jesus. If you're not with him, you're against him. If you're not gathering with him, you are scattering. And I think the whole point of the illustration is this. Until you see the end of that house, you would think something good has been done. Something productive and helpful has occurred. Wow, there's no more demon and the house is clean. And Jesus says, yeah, you're not looking far enough. The end. End of that person. And he switches. He just drops the house metaphor. Is worse than the beginning. But yeah, in the meantime, if you haven't seen that end yet, 
you would think good is being done. You would think this person's gathering also. No, they're not. I, I, I think that's the unmistakable point. Hold on. Lee, Lee wants to... Well, I think if, if at that point, if they have cleaned house, the house is clean, then they're Pharisees. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees were saying. Look, we're not going around with prostitutes or we're not right. robbing banks. Right. Our house is clean, but it was just them and there was nobody stronger to take care, take it over. And also, what is Jesus blanked her blessing? Rejected? Corrected. Corrected. Okay. Thank you. Let me, let me press further with, with that. Um, I am, I mean, on the one hand, do I want righteousness to be done? Let's just take our country, okay? Do I want righteousness to be done in our country? Absolutely. Do I think that if our country passes more righteous laws in any way, this is a gathering evangelistic thing? No. If anything, it'll be harder to reach people. So I'm opposed to abortion for the sake of the children who are dying, not because I think that if we can somehow pass laws, people will become more Christians or something. Uh, I, I, I am opposed to abortion for the injustice of it and for the defense of human life, not under some belief that if we can just pass enough laws, we'll become a Christian country again. Moralizing without Christ taking place doesn't help anything. And so when we get involved in those things, we need to be very careful we don't start thinking that somehow this is accomplishing the gathering that Christ is doing. So I think it can, I mean, I'll, I'll join arms with people and fight and try to put laws in place. But you've got to remember, we're doing it for very different reasons. <laughs> you know? And that even though we can agree on some of these things with other people, they're scatterers. Right? So it, it's a tough minefield. A more moral America is not advanced. I, I got a chance to sit down and talk with uh, somebody who's all about political activism and stuff. And, and, and again, I, I absolutely think Christians can take part in that. I think it's tricky. I think it's a minefield. I think it's challenging because it's so easy to start putting your hope in this. But I asked this guy one question um, when I got a chance to talk to him. He's a good guy. And I said, do you believe a more moral but equally unbelieving America advances in any way in divine favor? To which he said, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> And that's the thing to keep in mind. So I'm all for let let righteous laws prevail. May our leaders rule justly. But let there be no illusions that somehow God's kingdom is coming. Somehow, you know, this gathering is taking place in that. Like, I'm glad. I'm glad when what is right is done. Absolutely. But let us not misunderstand what is being done when that happens. That's all. I, I sometimes just think people can get under the impression if we can just pass this law, if we can just get this down. Like, you don't get more moral people than the Jews of Jesus' day. You simply don't. I mean, I would love for many reasons that people in our country would adopt the ethical lifestyle choices of, of the Jews of Jesus' day. It would be a lot less violence and a lot less suffering. And for those reasons, I think it would be great. Jesus, in the very next verse after the one I stopped today, condemns them as a wicked and evil generation. That, that's the point we, gotta, we can't forget. It's just easy to start slipping those categories. We've got to keep them distinct. So I don't want to, I don't want you to hear me say there's no place for Christians in politics. Who cares? I'm not saying that at all. We've got to not, not collude or cloud the categories of, of gathering and doing spiritual work and, you know, this other category of justice and defending people's rights and, and, and standing up for the cause of the widow and the orphan and, and that. Those are different things. In fact, the best message I've ever heard on that topic, 
and I'm stealing a lot from it, even what I'm saying, was by John MacArthur, called The Deadly Dangers of Moralism. Yes, Linda, the John MacArthur. Oh, tell me. Okay. More questions on it, because I know this is a, 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 it has to be said precisely. JP, microphone, sir. So can you contrast that um, statement of Christ with Philippians 1.15 and following? Which says... Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, but um, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Okay. They, to the degree that they're preaching Christ's message, they're gathering with him, you can potentially gather with Christ even if you're his enemy. It doesn't say, the two statements aren't identity. Everyone who is with me, it, it says, anyone who's not with me is against me. Everyone who does not gather with me scatters. It doesn't mean you can't be one and not the other. There are well-meaning Christians who I think are scattering. And there may, and Paul I think is describing people who whatever we conclude if they're impure motives, are they unbelievers? It's possible. I know, I've heard of men who've, who've left the ministry, become atheists, who have preached gospelly faithful messages and proclaimed the true gospel. To the degree they're doing that, they're gathering. And, and what Paul's whole point is, their motives are wrong, and God will deal with them with that. But as long as they're scattering the good seed, the good seed can still bear fruit. So I'm glad the good seed's getting thrown out there. So I, so, so I would say in that sense, you can be gathering um, as long as you're gathering what, the way Christ is gathering, using his message and what he says. If you're doing that, you're gathering. Just because you're gathering doesn't guarantee your form. Did that work? Or Okay. Okay. Right here. Oh. How can we confidently protect ourselves from being... Speak parasitical mm. I mean I hear this stuff and I don't know why but I I, I look back at myself and say am, am I being that way and mm. I mean even listening to you preach the word people can think is he for real uh, I, I, it seems like a fine line that we need to cost how can we be confident that we're not being living a certain way, but not really being that way. Greg Sweet has the answer. All right. Well, I, I think, first of all, the Pharisees weren't preaching Jesus. Uh, they were preaching some of their, some of their message. Uh, as long as, Kevin, you're a believer and you're doing the best you can, you, I, I don't see how there's hardly any chance of you being pharisaical. You may be hypocritical at times because you can't live up to your message, but 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 I I don't see that as pharisaical. Mm. Um, I mean, th their message was wrong, completely wrong. Uh, I guess that would be my short answer. I I would, you know, do the best you can in your walk and stop worrying about being pharisaical. Let me add this. That no, that's good. Let me. I said no. No, that's good. I just said no. That's good. And yes, I've, I've been working on it. You can't, I didn't, haven't done it nearly as much. Okay. 
For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, a friend of mine who listens to this podcast pointed out that I'll frequently go, no, 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 that's good, yeah, no, no. And he, he was worried that people might get discouraged. Wow, he said no three times. I was way off. There's another point, Kevin. I, I think we, this is part of the reason we need the church we need each other. If the litmus test is our response to Christ's word, then the simplest way to show whether you're a Pharisee or not is when someone who sees you erring comes and brings God's word to you. And it stings because i got to change what I'm doing. How do I respond? We know how the Pharisees respond. You're going to expose my sin? Kill him. And we've talked to people who pretty much that's their response, right? The claws come out. Or do we respond to Christ's word and receive it and change? To me, that's the simplest litmus test. Go Go to Hebrews 3. And this is one of the reasons we need the local church and one of the reasons why lone wolf Christianity is doomed to failure. Because there are simply things that I cannot do for myself that you can only do for me. And vice versa. So in Hebrews 3, there's a warning. Similar to the the question Kevin raised. Verse 12. And and chapter 3 and 4 is kind of an extended sermon on Psalm 95. Which he's just quoted in verses 7 through 11. The chunk he's concerned with. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, I want you to notice the plurals and singulars. Take care, brothers, plural. Take care, you all. What do we need to be on our guard against? Lest there be in any of you an individual. So we all need to take care, lest within us all is an individual with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you, singular, to fall away from the living God. So the body corporate is called to be on our guard, lest an individual within us is falling away from, from Christ. What's the, what's the remedy for this danger? But you all, and you can't see this in English, but in the Greek, the verbs are clear. But you all exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, that not one, none, is short for not one, act individual, of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How does an individual become guarded against falling away? It's when the entire body is exhorting itself and keeping their eye out, so that when we see someone slipping, people come and exhort. And then how you respond to that shows whether you're a Pharisee or not. And, and so the, a body should constantly... People get all scared and terrified in Matthew 18. Steps one and two, an individual going privately, talking to someone, or maybe two or three people, talk, should be happening all the time in a healthy body. And it's wonderful as we course correct, because I don't see the big piece of cream cheese that's still on my mustache from the bagel I ate earlier today, but you do. And you come up and you say, hey, Thank you. You know, we get back in line, right? Now, every once in a while, we'll go talk to someone, and the fangs come out, and the claws come out, and that's when we, oh, maybe we're dealing with a Pharisee now, <laughs> because we know how the Pharisees responded to their sin being exposed. They will will, will say you're satanic. Shut up and leave us alone. Kill him. Whatever it takes to get rid of him. Does that, what, does that, what do you, Oh, what do you, does that does that help as well? So, so there's a corporate element. If it was just by myself, if I was just trying to be a Christian by myself, the potential for self-delusion and self-deceit is huge, and I and I wouldn't have much. How would I know if I'm sincere or not? How would I know if I'm not just justifying myself in my own eyes, selectively picking it? Because this is the danger for Christian Pharisees. We we're all big on the sins we don't wrestle with, so we do marches against um, homosexuality or abortion and things like that. And, and you know, 
those are sins, fine. I have not seen the Million Man March against pride or gossip. Right? We, we're respecters of sins. And generally the sins that I think are the worst ones are the ones I don't wrestle with, but you do. Right? Fair enough? That's the danger of being a Pharisee. So you're reading God's Word and you end up, the characteristic Pharisee prayer, we're going to see it later in Luke, is, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that man. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not wrestling with those things. I don't have those problems. That I need other people to guard me from that. Otherwise, I could start just overemphasizing those sins and things I don't struggle with and start to view myself over time because I don't struggle with those things as more righteous. But it takes other people. And this people love me. and do, I, I'm glad God has raised people up who are not afraid of me as the pastor who will come and talk to me. Right, Greg? <laughs> no, and I got other friends. No, and I, I thank them for it. I love it. I think I've told you... Um, one of one of the dearest services anyone's ever done for me, Daniel Moore, and I met in college, and uh, he he called me out. I, you know what Christians do when they're playing around with sin and they're a little convicted and so they need to do something, but they don't really want to deal with it. You share it as a prayer request. You just pray for me, and so I I can I was confessing to Daniel uh, some some. Uh, a relationship with, with a young lady who is not the person I ended up marrying, this is before I got married, that was headed into dangerous territory. And I knew, I knew that that wasn't a good thing. And, and, and he, he tried to ask me, okay, what are you going to do about it? And then I did the classic Christian dodge. I don't know, I need to pray about it. I mean, it's kind of like the guy who's, you know, um, the guy who's you know, cheating on his wife. I'm not sure what I'm going to need to pray about. It. You don't need to pray about it. It's written right there. Thou shalt not, like, just go end it, right? Um, so it was one of those situations. So I get back to my dorm room, and Daniel, after trying the subtle and gentle approach, wrote me a letter, kind of like a, an acerbic um, Puritan with a bad case of gout. And he wrote this letter to me that was very clear. And what it, in essence, said is what you're doing is wrong. And what you're doing doesn't just affect you and this other woman. What you're doing will affect the whole body as a little leaven will leaven the loaf. You need to decide if you're going to obey Christ and, and, and fix this or not. And I'm going to ask you tomorrow what your decision is. All right. <laughs> yeah, I am so thankful. Because I look back on that now and, and I was, you know, I was on the edge of of getting into you know basically full blown sexual morality with this with this woman, uh, this girl, and someone who I knew I was not going to marry or anything, and I'm so glad that, that I was spared from that, and and now with my wife and my kids, I'm just so thankful that that never bore the fruit it was starting to bear, and I was being stubborn, and he tried this gentle approach, and then he just took the gloves off, and I am so thankful for that. Uh, and we need we need each other for this. One of the reasons why we're a body is we, we need to self-regulate. Because here's the other thing. I don't know about you, but I tend to see other people's sin way better than I see my own. Right? Is that true for you too? Okay, excellent. Uh, so that's why we need each other. Because I give myself all sorts of passes, you know, and explanations and in mitigating circumstances that make me an exception. And, you know, other people lie and I am stretch the truth. Right? All right? Yeah. Okay. 
Um, Renee. Um, I had another comment on what Kevin said. I think it's good when we recognize the possibility that we're Pharisees. That's a good thing because mm. sometimes uh, we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, and because of the reasons you just said, we much prefer to focus on other people's sin and kind of think on that and mm. how maybe we need to go talk to them. Um, but I heard once that to that it's important that we um, make a difference, differentiate between whether we're being convicted by the Holy Spirit or whether we're being buffeted by the accuser. Mm -hmm. And um, what they said was, if it drives you to the feet of Christ, oh God, please don't let me be so. Please help me not be thus. It's uh, the Holy Spirit. And if it drives you away from Christ, it's the, the accuser. A amen with, amen and it with strengthens that. you in that yeah, battle. Yeah, conviction, it's, it's a tough thing because we live in a culture that says people should never feel bad no matter what, they should certainly never feel ashamed or shame. Shame is always bad. And yet we know that shame is a biblical category. In fact, I think a much more helpful way of dealing with the self-esteem movement is to put it into shame and honor categories. And when you start doing that, the Bible has scads of verses about this person will not be put to shame and this person will be honored. And I think that's a more helpful way of coming at it. And the bottom line is, you go to James, weep and howl you wicked, be ashamed. If I've acted shamefully, shame is an appropriate response and emotion. Now, you pointed out, sometimes the, the, the adversary would shame us. You think of Zechariah 3, where Joshua the high priest is standing for the Lord, and the accuser is there, and he's in dirty robes, and he's throwing his sin in his face. Right? And I think you're absolutely right. If the conviction and guilt you feel is driving you to confession, to the Bible, to the feet of the Savior. That that's not what Satan's after. I would I would I would I would assume that's the work of the Spirit. And whatever it is, it's good. Whatever it is, it's driving you to the Lord, to His Word, to His people, to His to His His Son. Thank the Lord for that. But there can be a contrary response where we can sort of like the dog with his tail between his legs, who peed on the carpet and is hiding in the corner. If if your guilt and your conviction is causing you to do that. That's not the Spirit of God. That's not, if your guilt's leading you away from the people of God and away from His Word and away from prayer and all of that, that's, that's nothing good or righteous at all. One, one of the most remarkable things for me is in Hebrews 4, I, we've looked at it before, and I won't turn there now because I want to get some more questions, but we're to boldly approach the throne of grace because we have a mediator in time of need for help and grace. When do you need God's grace and help more than when you're in, in a mire of sin? My, my temptation is I can boldly approach God's grace when I've had two or three good days. Or if I remember to share my faith with the, with the gas station attendant, then I'll boldly go in and, you know, here I am. But if I haven't been faithful, if I've been a, a, an unloving husband, if I've been um, slothful or whatever, then I am hardwired, we're all hardwired with works, to think, okay, I'll, let me shape up my act some, and then I'll go talk to God. And that's precisely wrong. Precisely wrong. Um, we're, we're told, because of our, I'm not believing I have an intercessor. I'm thinking my standing before God is based on me, not the one who's next to me when I come before the throne. My ability to come before God's throne is because of Christ and His intercession right now for me. And when I start treating that way, I... It, I'm, we just start drifting into works and Pharisaism that easily. You know, it's, it's that easy to start to drift into legalism and Pharisaism. And uh, 
it's it's uh, it's a challenge, I think, for every one of us. Okay, other thoughts or questions? Okay. <laughs> Pastor Jeremy, this goes back to when you were talking about if we could just change society or politics or something, and a verse that I really was contemplating before the election was, you know, if my people who are called mm. according to my name would humble themselves. And I really started kind of trying to concentrate on that word humble. And I, so I'd like you to explain what is God asking us to do? I, I mean, something that came to my mind was, well, the church has kind of failed the nation because we haven't shared the gospel like we should. We right. haven't shown neighborly love. Is that what that means, or what does that really mean? Let's first take a look at the verse in question and then talk about it. We are talking about Chronicles, right? First Chronicles, I believe. It's Solomon's prayer of dedication. We, we read this back when we were going through prayer. Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple, and I want to say it's, it's, uh, it's going to be 1 Kings or 1 Chronicles. 2 second, Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 7. Okay. Wanda, thank you for, for bringing that up. That's a great question. I think this is probably one of the most misunderstood and misquoted verses in the Bible. The re- here's the reason why I say that. I think inadvertently there is some truth to it. <laughs> where people humble themselves, where people turn to God, good things happen, un- undeniably, right? And, and, and that's what you're getting at. There needs to be hum- humbling. But the people who are called by God's name in this context is one people group and one people group only. It is who? Israel. And so what Solomon is doing in his prayer of dedication, and and if you look at the prayer, it starts in chapter 6, verse 14. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven and earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. And then he goes and recounts the Davidic covenant and the promise God made to David. And he's, he's awe that God would live with him. And then, live with the people of Israel, I mean. Then, starting in verse 22, Solomon lays out seven different if-then set scenarios. He's anticipating the various sins of Israel, and he's pleading with the Lord. So in the first instance, verse 22, if a man sins against his neighbor, and is made to take an oath, and comes and swears his oath before your altar in your house, then, it's always there's a then, then hear from heaven and act, and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing um, his conduct upon his own head. 24, if your people Israel are defeated before their enemy. And then 25 picks up the then here from heaven. Verse 26, when or if when the heaven is shut up and there is no rain. And verse 27, here in heaven and forgive. And so he's coming through all these different scenarios of, of Israel's failure. And if the people will will repent and humble themselves and in many cases pray towards this temple, he says, then will you please restore them? Will you help them? So 28, if there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight and mildew or locusts or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever place, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all the people of Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands towards this house, the temple Solomon built, then hear from heaven in your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind. Verse 32, Likewise, when a foreigner is not of your people of Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven 
your dwelling place in Deut, verse 34. The sixth example, if your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you towards this city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, and hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And then we get to the one, the final, seventh, the largest conditional if clause. I just want you to notice this, entra- this is a specific geography. This is a specific building, a specific people. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, what's he, what's he anticipating? Babylon. It was warned. It was warned in Deuteronomy what God would do. And so he's saying, if the unthinkable happens, if they are ultimately unfaithful and you actually carry out your threat you made in Deuteronomy 29 of dispersing them among the nations for their faithlessness, if that happens, even that, and repent and plead with you in the land and their captivity saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they've been carried captive and pray towards their land which you gave to their fathers. You know what land we're talking about here. The city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now... Chapter 7, God responds to these seven petitions. So Solomon prays to the Lord, and the bulk of his prayer is seven. If this happens, yet they turn, will you relent? If this happens, will you forgive? If this happens, will you restore? I just want you to see that, because God responds in verse 12 of chapter 7, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place. What place? The Temple Mount and the Temple for myself as a house of sacrifice. And then to show that he's heard and agrees, he starts to recount some of the scenarios Solomon envisioned. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So this this is not a promise that is, is given willy-nilly to any other nation. Solomon prayed a very specific prayer about a very specific country and a building. And the Lord heard the prayer. And here's the Lord saying, and yes, Solomon, I will do as you ask. If these conditions are met, yet these people humble themselves, I will restore them. I will bring them back from captivity. I will give them victory over their enemies. That, that's the context of that statement. So... The general principle, if the part that throws me off when people apply this to America, my people who are called by my name, that is not America, that's Israel. But if anybody, when we saw even the foreigner and the sojourner included in this, humbles himself, repents, and turns to the Lord, absolutely the Lord will bless them. 
but, but we are not His people called by His name. We simply aren't. And you can't make this work if you, do, if you try to do anything more than just pull one verse out because we don't have a building, right? Um, and, and God goes on to say, I've chosen this place and this house. And we're going to start getting into, what's the house? Is it like you know, the White House? I, no, it's Israel and the temple. And it's very specifically a response to Solomon's prayer. So I know that people mean well by referencing it to, to America. And despite the fact that I think it's taken out of context, there is some truth. If, if, if Americans would humble themselves, if Americans would repent and turn to the Lord, then the Lord would be gracious and, and bless them. What he would do with the whole country, I know not but it'll go well for them. So, yay, that's good. Uh, but I, I frequently will see that verse quoted with the implication that if we can, and here's where I get back to what I was saying earlier, if we can just pass the legislation, if we can just outlaw abortion, if we can just um, get the courts to overturn um, the Supreme Court on marriage, then God will bless us. And you're right in pointing out, no, without humility and turning to the Lord and the strong man taking place, nothing good's going to happen. We're just making Pharisees. As far as we're looking at the state of that house. So, so when, I think it's fantastic to, to stop abortion for the sake of those kids who are getting killed. I don't think it's doing any good for the, the people who are, whose minds are changed or stopped. I think there's all sorts of good being done for those kids. Um, does that does that get Wanda? Does that, there's a long answer. Does that get to where you're going at, or or no? It does, and I just praise God that you've been gifted with the gift of explaining that to us. Thank you. Well, well praise 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 the Lord. Here's a general tip in reading your Bible. The the best tip I can give you is this: whenever you're reading a verse, always, always, always at least read the paragraph before and after. Always. If you can, read the whole chapter, but at least read the paragraph before and after because I'll read books where people grab like a little phrase. Um, do you guys remember the, uh, the Purpose Driven Life? <clears throat> what, what do you really think about it, Linda? <laughs> well, the whole phrase, the Purpose Driven Life, comes from Proverbs. God has made it everything for his purpose. It's a really bad idea when you're dealing with a poetic couplet to only take half of the couplet, to take the A strand and not the B strand. Does anyone know what the second half, the, the parallel couplet line to that is? God has made everything for his purpose. Even the wicked for the day of destruction. It makes a radically different meaning to the notion that you've got a purpose. God made you with a purpose in mind. Oh, absolutely he did. And it might be destruction. That's the point of the proverb. Go read it. Look it up. And so, so, I mean, do you know in your Bible it says there is no God? It's just really important to know that Psalm 14 says, the wicked says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the smaller and smaller you're grabbing a verse, the more work you've got to do to make sure you're getting it right. Because it's really easy to twist the Bible by grabbing a phrase here and a phrase there and half a sentence over here. And not to say that if you understand it, you can't just grab a phrase here and a phrase there. But you've got to do the work to make sure you understand it because it's so easy to, to twist and manipulate. So best tip I can give you, read the paragraph before and the paragraph ahead. As, as my old pastor, John Street, used to say, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. 
meaning it's just it's just waiting to be misused. Um, I'll, I'll give my favorite favorite example I've ever heard of of this and the move break. Um, and and Chris, if you're in New Hampshire, I hope you're listening because he was there for this. We were we we're having a discussion about children and spanking and stuff, and all of a sudden my friend John, who's been busily furiously reading through his Bible, stops. He goes, "I found it." He's in Genesis. It says here, do not lay a hand on the child. Which is what the angel said to Abraham as he was about to sacrifice Isaac. (laughs) I kid you not. (sighs) So, so, um, (laughs) read the paragraph before, read the paragraph ahead. It'll save you a lot of trouble and heartache. God bless. We have a luncheon downstairs. I hope you will join us.